0: Today we come to the final sermon in our series that's entitled The Making of a Disciple. Over the last seven weeks, we've been identifying the tools that God uses to craft us into the disciples he wants us to be. Disciple making always begins with faith, for a disciple is one who has explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses the Bible to make disciples, For as a disciple, we encounter the living God through his living word. The Lord uses evangelism for the best way to stoke the fire is to share the story. Our God uses prayer as one of those holy habits that help set the guardrails in our lives. God uses ministry to fashion us into the disciples that he wants us to be. For through our ministry, we learn something very valuable about sacrifice, holiness, and our identity. Last week, we discovered that God even uses generosity to fashion us into the disciples that he wants us to be, for we are to use our worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity. Today we come to that seventh tool that God uses, and I simply want to call it mission. It may not be mission in the sense that you normally understand it, but I want to submit to you this morning that our mission as disciples of Christ is to finish well. With that in mind, I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Once you've found your sacred place in Scripture, please stand out of reverence to public reading of God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 12, allow me to begin reading at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Whenever you and I come to a study in the book of Hebrews, the first question that must be rendered is, who wrote this letter? There's great confusion A great ambiguity on the authorship of this letter. Some say it's Paul. Others say it's someone like Luke, maybe even Barnabas, perhaps even Apollos from Alexandria. I, for one, affirm the apostolic authorship of all 27 letters of the New Testament All of them can be traced back to an apostle who authored it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I must also confess that I agree with Origen, the early church father, who said, when it comes to the authorship of the letter of the Hebrews, only God knows. Only God knows for sure who wrote this letter. And yet I know it is an apostle, someone who is inspired by God to write this book. There is some common thread throughout the book of Hebrews with the other 27 books of the New Testament. One of those common threads is athletic analogies. The first century was a sports crazed culture, just like our culture. And numerous times throughout the 27 books, you'll find an illustration that's lifted out of the sports arena. So in a place like Ephesians chapter six is the apostle who says, that this thing called life is like a wrestling match. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul will say that, that life can be likened to a race. When he comes to one of his final letters that he wrote to his son of the ministry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul brings together both of those athletic analogies when he simply writes, I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Here, In our passage, there is an athletic analogy. The author says that this thing called life is like a race. But he has a specific race in mind. He's not talking about a sprint where the fastest runner wins. He's not even talking about an intermediate distant race where both speed and stamina are required. No, he's saying that this thing called life is a marathon. It's grueling. 26 mile 385 yard marathon and in order to run this marathon you have to have endurance one thing that is for certain is that the recipients of this letter were failing fast They were fizzling out, they were discouraged, they were distraught, they were deflated disciples, they were about ready to throw in the towel, they were about ready to quit. Why? Because persecution was very intense, because trouble was at every turn, and they thought to themselves, is it really worth it for us to continue and finish well? And the author of this letter comes along and says, your mission, my friend, is to finish well. Whatever the course is that God has set before you, you run it with faith. Whatever it is, you run this marathon. I know it's grueling. I know there are times that you want to stop. I know there are times you want to quit. I know there are times you want to throw in your towel. But you cannot stop. You cannot quit. For you will you will persevere. Theologians speak of this as the perseverance of the saints. That's one of the characteristics of being a saint. And it's also one of the promises that God gives the saints. That as a child of God, you will persevere. And as a child of God, God will help you persevere. So you are not going to quit. You're going to keep on running until you cross that finish line. It's this theme of endurance that seems to dominate the three verses I just read for you. In fact, the word endurance is embedded in all three of these verses. In verse 1. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. You said, "But wait a minute, pastor, you said endurance. That word says perseverance. Yet the original word can also be rendered elsewhere as endurance. In verse two, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's our word. Scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. In verse 3, consider him who endured, there's the word again, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, are the are, is, is the great command and the initiative that we are to endure. We're to persevere. My grandmother would say, to have stick that we are not to uh, fall behind. We are not to uh, quit. We will endure. And this race called life requires endurance. So the author says at the very beginning of our passage, let's just look around to all those who have gone before us. I mean, you think it's tough for you. It was tough for them. And they didn't quit. They, they didn't fail. They didn't throw in the towel. And if God helped them, what's the implication? God will help you. Just consider the great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12 follows Hebrews chapter 11, right? Captain obvious here, right? Okay, so Hebrews 12 follows chapter 11. Chapter 11 is commonly called the hall of faith. It's there that The apostle uh, begins to uh, remind us of those stories of, of Abel and Abraham and Noah and Moses, Rahab, just to name a few. When you get to chapter 11, verse 32, the author then compares all saints into one of two categories. The first category is a group of individuals that have great triumph. The second category is a group of saints that have tremendous trials. Both groups are regarded as super saints. They're individuals who endured, they persevered. But I want you to see what they had to experience. If you look with me in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, that first group, that group of great triumph, what did they do? They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle. They routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Woo, that's some cool stuff, isn't it? I mean, if I want to be part of a group, I want to be part of that group. I mean, that's the group that did not fail. That's the group that never tasted defeat. That's the group that did some amazing, uh, tremendous things for the Lord. But then there was a second category of saints. Once again, I'm in the middle of verse 35 of chapter 11. But others were tortured and refused to be released so they may gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings. So others were chained. And put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Right? I mean, that second group, they didn't have a lot of triumph. They had a lot of trials. Now, if we had two tables set up in the foyer today, and if I were to ask you, I want you to sign up for which group you want to be a part of. You can be a part of the first group, you know, that conquered kingdoms and routed enemies and dead came back to life again, or you can be part of the second group, and that second group was destitute and poor and the persecuted, walking around in sheepskin, and they had body parts sold off, uh, sold off in two. Now, which one would you want to sign up for? I dare say that most, if not all of us, would say, Sign me up for the first group and not the second group. But here's the reality these saints didn't get to choose what they experienced. The only thing they could choose was whether or not they were going to be faithful to run the race that was set before them. They didn't get to choose. If they got the choice to choose, they would choose table one, not table two. Group one, not group two. I don't know very many people would say, yes, why don't you please sew off my head from my body? That's really what I want to happen. No, uh, most people say, yeah, let me see the dead come back to life again. Now that's some cool stuff. I want to be a part of that. Both groups are commended because they ran the race with faith that's the only measuring uh that's the only measuring rod that God uses did they run with faith now when I was a boy um I never much played video games because let me just be honest I was terrible (laughs) I mean my friends would invite me over to play video games not because they liked me but just because they could beat me I mean they would I would be like toast right I mean they come on let's play this game and I was terrible I was terrible because I never practiced and I never practiced because I was terrible. It was a vicious cycle, okay? I've got a 13-year-old son and Nathan likes to play video games at times and he loves for me to play with him and it's only because he can roast me and toast me. That's why he likes to play dad because I'm terrible, I hate it. As a boy, there was one video game that I guess I was okay at and it was that video game where uh, you know you were you would uh, race cars and, and at the beginning of that game the player would get to choose the racetrack that they wanted to run and so you could either choose the nice oval which was easy or you could choose a course that had twists and turns now do I need to tell you which one I chose <laughs> I mean I always nine times out of ten and twice on Sunday I mean I always chose that nice easy course why Because I wanted to win, I wanted to get a high score. I wanted for once in my life to beat somebody at some video game, all right? And so that's why I would do that. Because I realized that if I chose the harder course, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't do as well. I, I wouldn't do nearly as well. You know what the difference is between a video game and real life? Is that most of the time, most of the time, you don't get to choose the racetrack that you have to run. In real life, you don't get to choose the racetrack. I don't know very many people who get to choose at the very beginning of life, okay, my racetrack is going to be about 93 years. That's how long I want to run this thing. And uh, and here are the things I'm going to experience in those 93 years. Here are the trials. Here are the troubles. Here's the sickness that I will get. Here's the sickness that I won't get. Here's the difficulty that I will experience. Here's the difficulty that I won't experience. Here are the triumphs that I will do for the Lord. Here are the things that I may not be able to participate in. I don't know very many people when it comes to the race of life that gets to choose the track. For the most part, the only thing we get to choose, beloved, is how faithful are we going to run the race on the track that's been set before us. We don't get to choose. So, when the apostle comes along and when he writes this letter, he is saying to the saints who receive this letter, listen, I know your track, your race, it has a lot of twists and turns. I know there's a lot of difficulty and persecution and it is intense. And I realize that some of you are wondering if Jesus is for real and if he's ever gonna come back and if this thing called Christianity is legit, I know that many of you are struggling severely. I know you've got sickness and sadness, headaches and heartaches. I realize that you have difficulty out to wazoo. But listen, you didn't get to choose the race that was set before you. All you get to do is choose how faithfully are you going to run that race. And God's mission is for you to run well. God's mission is for you to finish well. It is for you to run the race that he has set out before you. So how do you run this race well? In our three verses, the apostle gives about three instructions let us consider all the saints that have gone before us and the apostle says to the church let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles first he says when you get ready to run throw off everything that hinders That phrase uh, carries two images. The first one is the runner who is shedding excess body fat. Throw off everything that hinders. Because every world-class runner has to go through some grueling training. And what does that training do? It builds endurance, and in the process, it sheds the excess weight. Because what we do get to choose is uh, how in shape are we going to be, right? And sometimes in life we choose to eat the donut, don't we? And sometimes in life we choose the sweets instead of the broccoli. And sometimes in life we choose to get up and exercise, and other times we choose not to get up and exercise. And sometimes the the, the end result of that is for some of us we've got an excess baggage. We've got some fat that needs to be shed. So the first imagery is is an athlete who uh who gets rid of the excess. Body weight, throw off everything that hinders. But the other image is the one who, um, the athlete who throws off the baggy clothing everything that that may hinder and and if you're going to run a race you don't run it in a toga do you if you're going to run a race you don't run it in a robe or a dress when you run a race you don't have excess of baggy clothing that's going to weigh you down and slow you down no you get rid of that so so the apostle says throw off everything that hinders in your race called life you may have picked up some things along the way that hinder you some things that this morning you just need to throw away maybe you have excess baggage in your life and you need to throw away that relationship that's not glorifying to God or maybe you need to you know throw away uh, that decision that you made on Friday night all those years ago Or maybe you need to throw away that debt that you have accumulated. It's unnecessary debt, and to be honest, it's really just kind of bogging you down. Maybe you need to throw away running with the wrong crowd. Maybe you need to throw away getting too involved with that coworker. Some things that you've accumulated along the way, and they just bog you down and slow you down. And here the apostle says, if you're going to finish well, you got to throw away everything that hinders you got to throw away the sin that so easily entangles. You've heard this sermon preached umpteen times from various preachers. And you know how it goes. That most of the time the sin is identified as anything from gossip to greed and lust to lying. Anything that trips you up. Anything that hinders you. Anything that rears its ugly head in a, a repeated fashion in your life. And I get that. And maybe that's what the apostle means. But I do know there's a definite article in front of the word sin. He's saying throw off the sin that so easily entangles. He's not just saying a sin or any sin. He's talking about the sin that so easily entangles. So what is that? What is the sin that easily entangles the church? Keep in mind the context. He's been speaking in chapter 11 of faith. Faith, everyone ran by faith. They were commended for their faith. They finished well because of their faith. Perhaps the sin is a sin of unbelief. A sin of questioning God or questioning his sovereignty or, or not believing in his strength or power or timeliness. That is something about unbelief. Han Robinson, my preaching professor, would always say that faith is taking God at his word. So the opposite of faith is not fear, but the opposite of faith is disobedience. So when you and I are unfaithful, what we're being is disobedient unto the Lord. So what the apostle may be saying is throw off everything in your life that's disobedient. Throw off everything in your life that is disobedient and you run the race that God has set before you because anytime you accumulate disobedience in your life, it will slow you down. It will trip you up. So throw off everything that hinders and the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles the church. In essence, what the author is saying is, I, I want you to reduce the lag time in your life. What's lag time, you ask? The lag time is the time between knowing what you ought to do and then actually doing it. And for some of us, we have a lengthy lag time, don't we? We know what we ought to do, but then actually following through in obedience, oh, it may take a few minutes or a few moments. It may take a few weeks or months. It may take a few years, perhaps even a few decades. Maybe God has been calling you to throw off something for years. And today, He's telling you to reduce the lag time the lag time between knowing what you ought to do and actually doing it. How are you going to run this race, this marathon? It's grueling. It's agonizing at times. How are you going to do this? You're going to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And then secondly, he says, I want you to fix fix your eyes on Jesus, the world-class runner. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. In other words, I want you to set your gaze. When he says fix your eyes, that word fix means look at him and nothing else. It means look at him and nothing else. It means look at him and nothing else. To fix your gaze means that you are that you are gazing your sights on the author and perfecter of your faith. You're steadily looking at the finish line. You're looking at Jesus, who's already run this race in victory, and you're looking to him. He is the author and finisher of your faith. You're looking at him to the neglect of everything else. When you run this race, what's it, what, what, what's so easy to do? It's easy to glance at the other runners, isn't it? It's easy to look up in the stands. It's easy to catch the paparazzi as they're trying to flash the bulbs about how well you're doing, right? It's so easy to get distracted. It's easy to become jealous, isn't it? Because you think to yourself, now my race course, It's far more difficult than your race course. I've got more twists and turns than you do. And it's easy to get jealous because of that. It's easy to get frustrated because you think to yourself, now wait a minute. If I glance over here or glance over there or glance up there or glance down there, I may see somebody and they're really lagging behind. They're loafing on God or they've got it easy. Why did they have it so easy? I mean, look down the pew. And you see somebody, they've got a perfect marriage. I mean, they've got children who never disobey. They they always have world-class vacations. He always gets the promotion. She always gets the lucrative job. They live in the big house. They always have the new car. Life is always good for them. They never get sick. Have you noticed that? They don't ever get cancer. If you don't believe me, just check out their Facebook page. (laughs) Look at their Instagram account. I promise you, they'll they'll portray a perfect picture. And you look at that and you think, why do they have such an easy racetrack? Why why do they have it so nice? Why do they have it so easy? All you got to do is just look, look, look down the pew. Look upstairs, look downstairs. Look look around when you walk in the hallway. And if you're not careful, you can look around and become distracted. You can glance around and think, why do they have it so easy? My racetrack has twists and turns, ups and downs. Why can't I just have the easy one? You know, kind of turn left, turn left, turn left, turn left. What the apostle is telling the church is, listen, You you can gain encouragement from those who've gone before you. I mean, you can give a glance to those that are running with you, but you set your gaze on Christ. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He's the finisher of this thing that he started in you. He's the author of your faith. Didn't originate with you, it originated with him. And if he began a good work, he will complete the good work. You set your gaze on him, which means... You're looking at him at the exclusion of everything else. How are you going to run this race? How are you going to finish well? How are you going to, how are you going to do this mission that God has called you to? Well, first you're going to throw off everything that hinders and The sin is so easily entangles, And then you're going, to, you're going to fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of faith. But there's a third thing. Then i got to sit down. And the third one is consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. And where consider means uh, to give great thought towards, to think it through, to think it through, to consider what Jesus went through for you, to, to consider what he endured. He endured opposition from sinful men. He went to the cross before he got the crown he had to go through the gory before he could get to the glory (laughs) before he went to heaven he had to go through some horrible junk and if that's true for jesus don't you think it just might be true for you if that's what jesus had to endure then doesn't it stand to reason that that may be what you have to endure that's what the word means consider put it to reason think it through Just consider, what did Jesus have to endure for you? He had to endure hell for you. That's what he endured. From that few-hour window, on that faithful Friday, in the first century, the third decade, it is Jesus who drank every last drop of God's holy hostility that should be poured out against you and poured out against me, but it was meted out against the Savior, the Son of Man. And Jesus took our hell upon himself. That somehow God in his infinite sovereignty was able to condense an eternity's worth of hell into a three-hour window on a Friday afternoon in the third decade of the first century. And Jesus took all of our hell to the point that he finally declared, it is finished, To Tetelestai. It's accomplished. It's done. I don't have to endure hell because he endured it for me. Amen. The apostle just says, consider this. Just just consider this. Put it to reason. Think about it exhaustively. Just, Just think about what Jesus endured for you. And if Jesus endured all of this, then whatever you have to endure pales in comparison to what Jesus endured on the cross. And if God brought Jesus to and through the cross, don't you think that God will bring you to and through whatever your predicament may be? Consider. That's what the word means. Consider. Put it to reason. Think through it. Be logical about this thing. Consider. The seminary student barged into his professor's office. The seminary student was fit to be taught, so frustrated, so aggravated. He had just heard the latest news about how another superstar in the ministry had fallen to a moral failure. And he said to his favorite professor, I think I'm going to quit. When I look around and see how all the super saints are falling, when I, when I hear about the backbiting and the gossip that goes on in my church and this church and, and that church and his church and whatever church, when I hear about that, the students said, when I, when I see the, the critical comments, when I hear those critical comments, when I experience the, the, the clicks that go on in the church, the, the, The student said to his professor, I think I'm done. I think I'm going to go and withdraw from seminary. I'm going to drop out of ministry. I'm going to turn my back on church. Now, I love Jesus, but I don't think I have much to do with his church. Listen, have you ever felt that way, prof? And immediately his professor locked eyes with him, and he said, no, never. Never. Now, if you're asking me, have I ever been hurt by the church? Yeah. Has my family ever been overly criticized by church people? Yeah. Have I ever been disappointed in the lives of the saints? Yes. But if you're asking me, son, have I ever wanted to quit and turn my back on Jesus? The answer is no. What was a professor telling his student? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. This is our mission. Our mission is to finish well. Our mission is to run this grueling marathon called life and not quit. Our mission is to persevere to the very end. How do you do that? I'll tell you how you do it. You throw off everything that hinders and so easily entangles. You throw off the sin that trips you up. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't, don't get preoccupied with looking around at everybody else. And when it gets really tough, and, and you're fit to be tied, consider him who endures such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Because, you know, Jesus ran a race. He ran a race up a hill called Calvary. And Jesus willingly ran this race. The father didn't have to drag Jesus kicking and screaming up Golgotha. No, Jesus ran willingly, obediently, faithfully. And he stretched his arms out wide. And the Roman soldiers raised him high. And then they laid him low into a grave. And Jesus... Paid a sin debt he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus breathed his last. He accomplished the task. He gave up his spirit. They took his dead body and placed it into a borrowed tomb. The reason it's a borrowed tomb is because Jesus wasn't planning on being in that tomb very long. And on the third day, Jesus got up. God raised the son from the dead. He said, well done, good and faithful runner. You have finished the race. And you have gone through the cross. Now here is your crown. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb. Consider his Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. This is your mission. This is what God uses to fashion you into the disciple he wants you to be. So, church, run well. Brother, run well. Sister, don't stop. Run well. Don't quit. Don't slack. Don't fade. But run. Run until you cross the finish line. This is our mission. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we acknowledge that on this day, you are calling some people to enter the race. You're calling us to come and to accept you by faith. There may be somebody here who's not a believer. I pray that today be the day of their salvation. We pray that for those of us who are running but may be tired, weary, Oh, Father, today let us find strength in you. The altar is open for us to come. In Jesus' name.